Welcome to the 99th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a quick overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, recapping week 13 of the college football season, and recapping week 12 of the NFL season. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com, and we will start in the NBA, where Patrick went 2-2 two and two with his predictions. Moving on to NCAA football, Patrick went a perfect 4-0 this weekend, predicting college football. And NFL predictions, Patrick went 3-1. And, and in college basketball, Patrick also went 3-1 with his weekend predictions. So he was 12-4 overall in this weekend's predictions, bringing him to 255-182 and 182 overall, a 58.4% winning percentage. And he's 35-13 since he started picking NBA, NFL, NCAA football, and NCAA basketball games in the last three weeks. That's a 73% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your weekend predictions? Well, I mean, as you said, I've been doing well in uh, recent weeks, which is a good thing for sure. Uh, surprisingly, I think it's actually because the somehow college basketball, which seems like the most unpredictable sport, is the sport that I've historically done the best with, if you look at my uh, my all-time records for that. but uh, So I'm not necessarily surprised that I did well there. I was actually surprised... Frankly, out of the four losses that I had this weekend, that was probably the most surprising loss that I had was Duke losing to Gonzaga over the weekend. I think uh, a lot of people expected Gonzaga to win that game, and I think I definitely was one of those people. Obviously, I wouldn't have predicted it otherwise, but I've talked about Duke before as a national title contender, and that pretty much just cements that. I mean, they had cramping issues again and still managed to win the game. I think part of that was due to Gonzaga's cramping issues that they had throughout the... Or not, sorry. Gonzaga's foul trouble. Duke had cramping issues. Gonzaga had foul trouble. But the foul trouble uh, affected Gonzaga for longer parts of this game. Much more significant. Yeah, I think because the foul trouble was all early, and it was Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy early with two fouls. So they had to play very careful for all the second half. Drew Timmy did not play so careful. Got a few dumb fouls, frankly, uh, which is not what you expect from a senior. And frankly, I think he's one of the super seniors. But... Uh, regardless, Duke pulled out the win in that game, and I think they definitely deserve a lot of credit for that. And then in the NCAA, surprisingly in the hardest week to predict, rivalry week, uh, I thought that this might be a week where a bunch of teams broke their losing streaks in rivalry games, and it just so happened to turn out that way in my favor. Uh, although NC State didn't necessarily break that bad of a streak, but uh, Michigan broke a long losing streak, Oklahoma State broke a long losing streak, uh, and then Iowa didn't break a long losing streak, but uh, Nebraska once again failed to win in a close game. But we'll, we'll we'll talk about that one later. A pretty average week in the NBA there, though. Uh, and then also uh, three and one in the NFL is pretty good. But some of the backup games I was going to pick, I also would have gotten right because I was thinking about picking the Bengals and the Steelers, and uh, we know how that one turned out. Uh, but. You know, so I, I feel like I've hit a good stride in terms of predicting, and part of that is because it's so late in the season, I think, that we kind of know what to expect from these teams. You know, I, I think back to Michigan and Michigan State both being undefeated going into their matchup with each other as a perfect example of this, where you really, I mean, Michigan had played Wisconsin, but at that point, Wisconsin was still 3-3 three and three or 4-3, and three, and Michigan State really hadn't played anybody well, uh, or hadn't played anybody good, I should say. And the people they had played that were decent, they did not play well against. So it was really hard to judge that kind of in the middle of the season. At this point, I think we have enough, really in the NFL and the NCAA, to kind of judge where the teams are. I think 
it's kind of easier once you get to the end of the season. Although I will say, uh, in NCAA basketball, <laughs> somehow it's been the opposite where I predicted better at the beginning of the season, and we'll see what happens when we get into conference play. That tends to be where stuff gets crazier, and part of that is probably because most of these games that I'm predicting right now are being played on neutral courts, and that's a big part of it. And also early in the season, I'm going to pick a lot of teams who have more experience, and they're going to play a lot of freshman teams, a lot of teams that have a lot of young guys on them, and I just won't be picking the young teams until later in the year and seeing how they do. Uh, so that's a little bit of a part of it. But And then in the NBA, it's it's up and down as normal. You never know what's going on with injuries and everything. The one constant is that Golden State will always win a game if you tell them that they're going to win the game. So that 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 worked out for me this week. And uh, Nikola Jokic I thought was going to be out and then finally wasn't out the one week I did predict them to lose, but they still lost anyway. Uh, but actually, no, he was out in that game. He, ret- he, returned, he returned later in the weekend, I should say. Um, but overall, you know, average in the NBA. There were two close games between... Uh, with uh, Miami and Chicago, and then also with Brooklyn and Phoenix. They were two great games, two close games, four good teams, but that one was very hard. Those two were hard to predict and uh, didn't go my way. All right, well, uh, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. That's at 4thand24.com. Let's now move on to our weekly look at college football, and we will start with the best games of Week 13, according to Patrick. The first one, Alabama beats Auburn 24-22 in four overtimes in the Iron Bowl. I mean, I think the big takeaway in this game was that uh, if I had a most disappointing teams category, I would be putting Alabama in that because this was probably the worst showing that they've had in the Iron Bowl since the last time they lost in it. Um, And that was with a backup quarterback who, you know, his name is Mac Jones. He doesn't do anything. He's not a good quarterback whatsoever. Um, But... I mean, that obviously, that being sarcastic, that was his second game playing, and he was playing against Auburn, so that's not too surprising that he lost that game, Uh, and they were just out of sync. They had a lot of turnovers. That year, they had really their only off year in a while. I think this is probably the worst team they've had since then, yet somehow they've only managed to lose once. I would attribute that to... Uh, LSU being down, I would attribute that to Auburn, their biggest rival, being down because if this wasn't a 6-5 and five team with a backup quarterback in, Auburn would have killed Alabama in this game. I think it's pretty easy to say. Uh, it was only 10 to nothing, and the lead was uh, not expanded on because of the fact that it was T.J. Finley at quarterback and not Bo Nix. I think Auburn would have easily won this game with him. And Auburn also made some stupid plays. Tank Bigsby could have gotten out of, could have stayed inbounds, I should say. Uh, on a second down play, and it would have ran off 40 seconds left on the clock. Alabama scored with 25 seconds left in regulation, so those 40 seconds would have been really, really important. They didn't have them, and because of that, that's really why they lost. And then obviously, once it got to the two-point conversions in overtime, I feel like that comes down to coaching and talent, not necessarily execution as much, especially because you're only running for a a two-yard play. And Auburn with a backup quarterback who also was injured in the middle of the game, was not going to end up playing outplaying Nick Saban and a healthy Alabama team that had only really started to play well in the second half, although Alabama did have Brian Robinson out for most of the second half. But uh, they weren't probably going to run the ball on any of the two-point conversions to begin with. So still really disappointed with Alabama in that performance, and frankly, they should be moving down in the rankings for sure. Well, we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, other great game of the weekend, as Patrick has... Uh Listed here is North Carolina State, 34, North Carolina 30 in a rivalry game like we had many this weekend. Patrick, your thoughts on that game? Well, if Alabama was disappointing for 
for coming back in a game. North Carolina was the opposite for choking a game. Uh, they were up by 10 with two minutes left. And the unwinnable scenario that we always talk about is, okay, whatever, the other team, all right, they're going to score the garbage time touchdown, they're going to kick the onside kick, and it's not going to work, and then you're going to win the game after taking two knees. Well, uh, North Carolina not only gave up that touchdown to NC State on about four plays, which is also the one thing you can't do is give up a big play, but then they also failed to secure the onside kick, and then NC State won right after scoring another touchdown, both of them by Emeka Amezi. Uh Look, there's not much to say about this. North Carolina just had a very bad choke, and really, uh, other than the Wake Forest game, that's kind of a summary of their season. Not necessarily choking games, but easily having the opportunities and just not converting that well. Well, speaking of teams that uh, had a chance to win, uh, end up losing a close rivalry game on Friday. Number 16, Iowa won 28-21 over Nebraska at Nebraska. Patrick, thoughts on Scott Frost's team? Well, I said it last week, just because he gets you close in a game does not mean you should keep him because, guess what, he will never win those games. This week was the perfect example of him having the complete and total inability to win such games. They were up 21-9, and then the final 15 and a half minutes of the game were outscored 19 to nothing. If, if, that, if that doesn't tell you all you need to know about Scott Frost in Nebraska, then, I mean, you can stop paying attention to college football. You might as well because you're never going to understand if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't know. And the other thing is, it's gotten to the point where you can, if you're talking to people who know about college football, I was texting friends during that game, and it was 21-9, to and I was just having the feeling like, I'm going to text someone because I'm so confident that Nebraska is going to choke this game. So I texted someone and I said, you think Nebraska is going to choke this game? He responded, yes. What happened? They choked the game. It's just, it's unbelievable how predictable it is that they're going to choke these games. And the one constant in the games hasn't even been bad quarterback play because they had a different quarterback this game. Hasn't been anything like that. Hasn't been bad O-line. Hasn't been bad defense. It's coaching. It's the only thing that's been the constant in all these games. It's been four years. They've had many senior classes come through. They've had many recruiting classes go through. And none of them can win close games. What is to blame for that? Coaching. Yeah, and as we'll, we'll see in a minute, uh, this, this, this game had major impact implications on the Big Ten uh, championship game. But let's uh, move off the best games of the week and talk about the big upsets from last week. The first one Patrick has is LSU over number 15, Texas A&M, and who some people thought might be the uh, guy to be the next coach at Texas A&M. I'm sorry, at LSU at the time, 27-24. Well, uh, I mean, this game was pretty fun to watch. Uh, it was it was looking like one of those games where uh, you thought LSU had the lead, and then kind of like Texas A&M in the Ole Miss game, they just started to play better at some point, and you'd assume that they would come back the more, more talented team. They'd figure out a way to win the game. Uh, they scored 14 in the fourth quarter, and you'd think that was enough for them, but uh, especially because they put the ball in their defense's hands, and their defense has won them game after game this year. This time they didn't. Uh, LSU scored on a third and 10 with 20 seconds left on a little bit of just pretty much a straight up streak down the, down the right side, down the right of the sideline. And, uh, that was it for LSU. Uh, although it's a bittersweet end to the Ed Ogeron tenure because he did once again lead them to a bowl game. 
and got left the le- ended a season with a memorable moment, but he's not going to be coaching in the bowl game. <laughs> he made that, and decision. he won't be coaching after that. So uh, after national championships and after close bowl game wins, still not going to be ending as happy as could be. Uh, but th- that'll be it for him at LSU. And uh, Jimbo Fisher will have to go back to the drawing board. And uh, I guess the one thing is, I guess it didn't mean much that they that they lost that game earlier in the season to Mississippi State at home. Because, frankly, it, it was a thing that if they had beaten Mississippi State at home and they had won this week, they would have won that division of the SEC over Alabama. And they would be playing Georgia instead. But because of that result earlier in the year... They didn't even have that opportunity to go out and win this game this week. And then because of that loss, well, now it doesn't matter at all anyway. So uh, it's a sad way for A&M to go out, but at least it did not matter at all. (laughs) Moving on to another game that did have implications for a conference championship. In the battle for the Axe, Minnesota defeats number 14 Wisconsin 23-13 in Minneapolis. Patrick, your thoughts on the Golden Gophers triumph? Well, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later in the historical context of it, but Minnesota pulls out this win and, frankly, helps out Michigan a little bit because I think you never want to play the same team twice. If Wisconsin had won this game, Michigan would be in a rematch with Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin's inability to win this game causes Michigan to play Iowa in the Big Ten Championship. We'll talk about how Michigan got there uh, in a second, Um, but... A good win by Minnesota and really a surprising win because Wisconsin had been playing so well throughout most of the season. And, uh, you know, Minnesota, if you look at it by who beat who, Minnesota got beat pretty easily. Not not necessarily by a big margin, but pretty easily at home by Iowa. And Wisconsin destroyed Iowa. So you would expect Wisconsin to be a much better team than Minnesota, but I guess you put it in a rivalry game where it just means more for one team. And uh, Minnesota came out thinking, we can spoil our rival season. Let's go ahead and do it. Yeah, and you spoke about the Texas A&M game that because of the Mississippi State loss didn't didn't really didn't really matter, um, especially with with Auburn beating uh, losing to Alabama. But Minnesota, think about this: they lost to Illinois. Think at home; they also lost to Bowling Green at home. Uh, they would have been in the conference championship game. They would have won the division. Then again, had Nebraska not been Nebraska, but I guess it, that's a big if. Um, Minnesota would have been in the championship game too. Yeah, Nebraska's going to lose close games regardless. Minnesota losing to Illinois, is that's that's a bad loss. That one stings when you look back at it from earlier in the season, and it probably stings just about as hard as Wisconsin's loss in this game over a team that they've played pretty well against. Yeah, but Minnesota ends always uh, ending against beating your rival, and like you said, uh, ruining their division titles is always a good thing. Our final upset of the week, North Texas. Upsets previously undefeated, ranked number twenty-two, UT San Antonio, forty-five to twenty-three. I think if you say the name UTSA, they're a little bit more recognizable. But uh, you know, UTSA is a relatively new Division One program, so it's not all too surprising that they couldn't complete uh, an undefeated season. This is frankly they're way ahead of where they should be in terms of their schedule and timeline in D one. However, they really did have a chance against a team who. Coming into the season was supposed to be one of the better teams in that conference, but didn't really play out that well. Uh, but, you know, another team that was playing for bowl eligibility, and you wonder if that was really their motivating factor to try to get into a bowl game just like LSU, win the game and have those implications for them, that would be a big deal. I think North Texas made a bowl game last year, too, so having being in a bowl game two years in a row for 
you know, a smaller program is it's a big achievement, and especially spoiling a team's undefeated season. Uh, not much to say about this one because obviously during a week during rivalry week, you're not really paying attention to UTSA regardless of the situation. Uh, but good win by North Texas, another team playing spoiler to another team's season goals. All right, let's move on to the most impressive teams in a game I don't want to talk much about, but number five, Michigan, dominated Ohio State 42-27 in Ann Arbor. I'm surprised you didn't enunciate the fact that Ohio State was number two in the country and also... Not anymore. Dominating is a little bit of an overstatement in my opinion, but uh, let's say played an old-fashioned beat-em-up game of football is probably the best uh, way to describe that game. Uh, they said it couldn't be done, that Jim Harbaugh couldn't win by running the ball. Uh, he brought in a pass-first offensive coordinator, and somehow the first time he's able to beat Ohio State, he does it by running the ball 45 times. So uh, I guess everybody was wrong that old-school football doesn't work in new-school football. Although I will say the one way that was different is that Zone has become more prevalent than man coverage on defense, and Michigan was running man coverage against the best receiving core in the country for five years straight, uh, which is just pretty much idiotic. And, you know, you get Don Brown out, uh, you hire a very, very young defensive mind in Mike McDonald from the Ravens, and all of a sudden you start playing a different defense, as I like to call it. He plays a very Ram-style defense where... You, even if you have good corners, you kind of ignore that fact, and you play a lot of zone, you play a lot of safe coverage. You just make sure you don't give up big plays without the other team making them by, well, mossing your cornerbacks. That's pretty much the only way that that could happen. And by the way, Ohio State did do that a few times in this game. Three times. Um, yeah, but still, Michigan was able to hold up on the defensive end. And again, if you look at the numbers over the first five meetings, it, the numbers aren't necessarily terrible offense for Michigan. 25 points per game in a rivalry game is not bad. What's really bad is the, the nearly or maybe even more than 50 points per game on average that Michigan was giving up on defense. Uh, so you combine it one year where you give Michigan an above average offensive uh, performance and a way, way, way better cutting that point total in half on defense. That's a winning formula. The crowd was crazy. The snow favored Michigan a lot because Michigan was not going to throw the ball as many times as C.J. Stroud and Ohio State were going to in the first place. Um, and it allowed for Michigan's pass rushers. I mean, it is a little bit harder to move in the snow, but I guess the snow wasn't really accumulating on the field necessarily, so it was still easy for everybody to move. But uh, it really favored a game where the, off the best offensive line was going to win. Uh, and that easily was Michigan's this week. Uh, Ohio State has some great offensive linemen. They have a good offensive line, but Michigan's far outperformed them this week. Uh, and really, Ohio State, I think they failed to impose their will as they normally do. Uh, and their running game was not formidable enough for Michigan to have to draw anybody down to try to stop the run. Normally what happens is, if you look in the past games, you have Ezekiel Elliott with 250 rushing yards and whoever it was at quarterback at the time, probably JT Barrett, might have been Braxton Miller. I don't know. They've had a lot of quarterbacks, but they've all been pretty good. Um, whoever it was, they just they draw the safeties down the field a little bit. They draw the linebackers in a little bit to pay more attention to the run. And all of a sudden, it opens medium. It opens deep routes. It opens the crossing routes. When you play zone, crossing routes aren't as open. Uh, when you play, what, what the few times you play man, they, I mean, Ohio State was still able to take to take advantage of you know, some matchups like Jackson Smith and Jigba on David Ojabo and Edge Rusher. That happened probably one too many times. But at the same time, 
Uh, it was really just the fact that Ohio State couldn't set anything up because Michigan didn't need to bite on the run because I think the first drive of the second half really just showed what happened. Ohio State ran the ball three straight times out of the half, did not get a first down, three and outed on it, and that just showed Michigan, look, you can play pass defense and hold these guys to under three three yards per rush. Don't Don't play run defense for the rest of the game. Play everything like it's a pass. And you're going to stay in it, and you're you're going to be able to win the game playing everything on deep pass defense. And a four man rush is enough to get to C.J. Stroud because he was holding on to the ball for a little bit longer than he should have been, knowing or not necessarily knowing, but thinking that he had more time because he had been used to that behind his O line, which is really good at pass blocking. But this game just wasn't that. Michigan has two talented edge rushers, and they were able to make sure that. He wasn't escaping out of the pocket and running a lot, and he also wasn't able to have enough time to get deep throws down the field. And all of that combines with sometimes the four-man rush didn't get there that quickly, but there was great coverage downfield. There was just enough back and forth of a synchronized defense that Michigan had, and it was too much for Ohio State to win the game. And the other interesting thing in this game is that the team with the most rushing yards has won the last 19 matchups, and, uh, well, that stayed true with this one, and I guess it was 18 before this one. But still, because it is a Big Ten rivalry, it's not like Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, you don't have to pass the ball to win this game. And frankly, I think the rushing thing is a little bit skewed because I think there have been years where it's felt like Ohio State had one big play on, on in the running game and just was able to run the ball more by the end of the game because they were winning by so much. But that, that still is definitely a part of it, especially in games that aren't so close. But still an interesting step because there have been close games. They've run overtime games and still the rushing attack has won every single battle. Yeah, and the reason why I said a dominating game was uh, what you mentioned. Michigan's offensive line against Ohio State's defensive line. It was a dominating performance, particularly in the second half, where, as you mentioned, Michigan uh, defense did enough, and the, the Michigan's offense uh, kept scoring. And only had to throw four passes to do so. So here are these crazy stats for the second half. So Michigan scored touchdowns on all four of their non-kneeling drives when they did the last one to run out the clock. They didn't face a single third down on any of those drives in the second half. The average length of those drives was 72 yards in five plays. Michigan only threw the ball four times, like you said, uh, in the second half, and they were four for four for 77 yards. They ran the ball 17 times for 190 yards. That's an 11, over 11 yards per carry. That was a dominating second half performance by the Michigan offense and offensive line with that rushing attack. So that's why I said the domination. And yeah, we're gloating a little bit. It's been way too long for our Michigan Wolverines, and credit to them. Uh, and also brings into the conversation if Aiden Hutchinson might be in conversation for the number one overall pick over Kayvon Thibodeau because, look, you have two big, big, strong, and yet really, really athletic and fast defensive ends who are, I mean, they're tall, they're long, they have really everything. They look like basketball players on the, on, on the football field, but it's really a question, and we'll see. also depends on who picks first because I think we all know that there's no quarterback going first this year. Um, but depending on who picks first, it might change it a little bit because you never know if uh, if that team needs an edge rusher or not. There are some teams who, even though they are, you know, they're terrible, they still might have good edge rushers. Jacksonville <laughs> comes to mind with that because they used their first round pick a few years ago on Josh Allen, not the quarterback, uh, although maybe they should have, uh, who is really, really good. So there are some teams who have a lot of talent there and yet just aren't that great. You could see a lot of teams picking offensive line in, in their first overall pick. Uh, so... It depends on who's picking, but if in terms of the best edge rusher and most likely the number one pick, now there's actually a conversation, whereas it used to be a foregone conclusion for Thibodeau. 
Yep, we'll uh, talk a little, bit more, a little bit more about Aiden Hutchinson later. One more note that I forgot on the dominating performance by Michigan's offensive line. Zero sacks, zero tackles for loss the entire game. All right, let's move on to the next most impressive team, which was number seven, Oklahoma State, defeating number 10, Oklahoma, in what they call Bedlam, 37-33 in Stillwater. Patrick, your thoughts on this game? Yeah, well, this game is the opposite of the uh, rushing attack wins the game. This is game is the is the game of... Who can throw more 30-yard passes while not even waiting for their receiver to get out of their route break uh, with no pocket necessary? Just take the ball, take the snap, chuck it up, see who catches it. That was pretty much the whole first half of this game. And then the second half was dominated by not Oklahoma's defense, not Oklahoma's special teams, not Oklahoma's defense, not not Oklahoma State's, sorry, offense or defense, but Oklahoma State's mistakes on special teams, they muffed a punt uh, and also couldn't get out of their own end zone and had a safety uh, the, on the play before that. and Or no, sorry, after after they muffed a punt that Oklahoma recovered in the end zone, uh, Oklahoma State got, got a negative one-yard rush for a safety, and all of a sudden a 24-24 tied game became a 33-24 lead for Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State only got back into this game because, well... Oklahoma muffed a punt that Oklahoma State then turned into a touchdown from the five-yard line. So a sloppy game for a 37-33 game. And uh, last few plays of the game, I mean, it looked like it was over for Oklahoma. And then Caleb Williams broke off a 60-yard run to get all the way to the 20-yard line with about 20 or 30 seconds left. Uh, Oklahoma didn't do anything from there, but uh, it really could have been much closer than it even ended up. And overall, I mean, just a ridiculous game to end rivalry week. And to end Lincoln Riley's coaching career at Oklahoma, we later found out. Uh, all right, let's move on to your last most impressive team, um, number 12, Michigan State, at home in the snow over Penn State, who wore all white and you really couldn't see them. So maybe it was, uh, they were, maybe you think it was impressive because they were actually able to tackle Penn State. 30 to 27. Well, you stole my joke there and didn't even present it as a joke, so that's kind of oh, that disappointing. Was, is that why? Yeah, I was going to say I was very <laughs> impressed because uh, something that I have very good eyes and I have I believe in my own eyesight in my own eyesight, but I was looking every single play. I could probably see maybe six or seven Penn State players on the field because they were wearing all white in a game where the field in East Lansing yeah. was covered in snow. It seems like you know, Michigan said that there was snow at their game, but if that's snow, then Michigan State was playing in a blizzard. I mean, that was they were actually playing in an avalanche, for that matter. I mean, it seemed like maybe the storm at the beginning of the day decided, you know what, let's not rain on the parade of Michigan. Let's go over to East Lansing instead. And it just feel it just seems like everything, the the whole weather in uh, in all of Michigan just turned and went to East Lansing and just you know took a little bit of a turn, and then all of a sudden, I mean. That game was hilarious. I had to put it here somewhere because I really don't think it was a great game. Uh, But I am impressed that Michigan State found a way to somehow send Penn State to their second straight losing season in in Big Ten games. And yet their coach got a 10-year extension, so let's talk about that one a little bit. But, uh, well, maybe let's not because we've been a little bit long in the the podcast so far today. But uh, I'll just say... In terms of uh, coaches, there have been a lot of coaches who've had restructured contracts, and some of them I don't think should have gotten them. Jim Harbaugh's contract has seemed to pay off, to pay off, and it looks like Michigan will pay back his pay cut in bonuses possibly this season. Uh, but at the same time, both of these coaches just got extensions for Penn State and Michigan State, and 
I don't necessarily know if either of them are warranted, but I, I'm honestly even more surprised that James Franklin is making less than Mel Tucker, and that because of that, he didn't try to go somewhere else. But I guess maybe no one really wanted him because it seems like he didn't have much leverage with the contract that he got. Yeah, I, I think they both, uh, they're, the MVPs for both of these teams' coaches are their agents um, for using the prospect of taking another job to leverage a, a big contract before those, those, uh, before those positions get filled. But jokes aside and coaching aside, I, I was actually impressed that Michigan State was able to run the ball very, very well with an injured Kenneth Walker. And by the way, with what we saw from C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young this weekend, he might actually be back in the Heisman conversation because we had two quote-unquote Heisman moments, then all of a sudden Bryce Young has a game of under 50% completion percentage. C.J. Stroud only throws for two touchdowns, although he did throw for 370 yards, so it is possible that he's still the leader in that conversation because he had his Heisman moment and then followed it up with a decent game, although they they lost. I guess that kind of got overshadowed. It made, it made him look a lot worse than he really was in that game against Michigan. But Bryce Young was not good enough to be a Heisman candidate this weekend against Auburn. Uh, he did so that game-winning drive, game-tying drive. He led a game-tying drive after doing absolutely nothing for the first half of the game. And to be a Heisman candidate, you need to play four quarters of football every single week. And frankly, that might be the reason why C.J. Stroud is the real only candidate unless you start looking at defensive guys. So we'll have to talk about that one later, but let's move on from that for now. Well, let's talk about that topic because... Uh, in order to be a Heisman Trophy winner, you got to be one of the most impressive players late in the season in a big game. So who are your most impressive players from this weekend? I will start with Aiden Hutchinson. I think this is the one that you were hinting at me to start talking about. Uh, Heisman contender. With seven tackles, three sacks, three tackles for a loss in the biggest game of the year. Well, frankly, in all of college football probably, I would say, so far at least. Um, we'll see what he does in the playoff to follow that up because... If he starts stringing together performances like these, he he at least will get, he should at least get uh, an invite to New York. I don't know if he necessarily, I I don't know if it necessarily will warrant him winning because it's taken a lot for a defensive player to win. And if you look back at Ndamukong Sue's season that didn't even warrant an invite to New York, you will see that defensive players have almost no chance of winning the Heisman, especially linemen. Um, But... Another one for Michigan that really flew under the radar and I don't think will be getting New York this time because of splitting carries earlier in the season is Hassan Haskins, who had 28 carries, 169 yards, and five touchdowns. Although five touchdowns will surely help in his uh, overall season stats, and the 169 yards are nice too. I still don't think he's necessarily up there on the yards leaderboard with Kenneth Walker, and uh, I believe there's also a Central Michigan running back, and then Mizzou's running back, Tyler Beatty, is also up there, so... It's hard to say that he'll be able to make it up there, and it's really just because he was splitting carries early in the season with Blake Corum. Uh, but he maybe has an outside chance of getting there. And, and also the thing is, if you're looking at the best players on the best teams, Michigan was kind of more of a balanced team in terms of contributions, and especially when you look at it, Aiden Hutchinson broke the single-season sacks record for Michigan, but David Ojabo was one sack away from doing it himself. Like, himself. So... Uh, it's hard to to give it to that when and and then Hassan Haskins is splitting carries, so it's hard to give it to those guys when they've been you know not necessarily um, the feature I guess at their position the whole year, and also when Michigan hasn't looked like they were going to be one of the best all year, and then all of a sudden I don't know where Michigan's much better than Michigan State I think we can all agree upon, and also they're better than Ohio State, and frankly at this point might be better than Alabama, so. It's hard to say, and I mean, Cincinnati has been blowing out teams, so Desmond Ritter doesn't look that great. When you look at the best players on the best teams, Georgia does not have one because their their success is Smart built games. by their defense. 
it's very hard to to give the Heisman to anyone this year when the best players aren't on the best teams. Yeah. Um, we had some more impressive players for the weekend, but before you move off the Michigan players, adding to uh, a little notes, adding to Aiden Hutchinson's day, um, in addition to the tackles and sacks that you mentioned, he, according to Pro Football Focus, had 15 quarterback pressures in the Ohio State game, which is the most ever in a single game by any single player since they started charting college football in 2014. And then Hassan Haskins, of his 169 rushing yards, an amazing 110 of them came before contact. More of a testimony to the offensive line than him. But I was uh, about to say that's that's definitely not even that's not showing his talent too well though because he's a really physical guy who gets a lot of yards after contact. I thought you were going to say 110 yards were after contact. No, 110 before he was touched. All right, let's move on to your last most impressive player of the week. I will give it to John Mechie from Alabama. 13 receptions, 150 yards. The reason why this was impressive to me and why I felt like I had to mention it, Jameson Williams got ejected for targeting uh, their, start, their really number one receiver, although everybody thought it was going to be Mechie going into the year. It actually ended up being Ohio State transfer Jameson Williams. He got ejected for, for targeting on a tackle that he made on special teams. And I thought that that would make it even worse for Alabama and worse for Mechie because, and he had a slow start to the day, I thought that Alabama wouldn't be able to throw to him because Auburn would just be doubling him a lot and making sure that he wouldn't let them be, that making sure that they wouldn't let him beat them because they really have nobody else in terms of wide receivers uh, who have played a lot this year behind Mechie uh, and Jamison Williams. But he actually got better after Williams went out, so I was really impressed with that. All right, what about the best road win of the week? I will give it to Ole Miss winning the Egg Bowl 31-21, to although it was on Thursday. And uh, still a good game, but congrats to Ole Miss for winning that rivalry game, securing the first 10-win season in program history. All right, any overall takeaways from across college football week 13? Well, to end the year of the upset, we had the week of the ending streak. It rhymes for a reason. Wisconsin beat Minnesota 14 times in a row until 2017 and had won 16 out of 17 before Minnesota beat them this weekend. Ohio State had beaten Michigan eight times in a row, 15 out of 16 before this year. And Oklahoma had beaten Oklahoma State six times in a row until this weekend. And all of those teams who had those long streaks ended up losing a crazy week to end a crazy year. And the next one, I think we're going to have a playoff of unfamiliar faces. If you look at all the playoffs, you've seen a lot of Alabama. You've seen a lot of Clemson. Frankly, I think both of them have only missed one playoff each. Uh, then you have a lot of Oklahoma, who I think Oklahoma has only missed two or maybe three. All of a sudden, Oklahoma cannot win their conference. Alabama already has a loss, and it looks like they're going to have two probably if they lose to Georgia. I think they will. Uh, and also, along with Oklahoma not being able to win their conference, Clemson's nowhere close to winning theirs, and they have three losses. They're way at the bottom of the rankings. So those two familiar faces, at least we know, will not be in the playoff. And not even Notre Dame, who has been a fill-in of one of those teams a few times, and I think Washington is one of the only other teams to make the playoff, uh, they don't look like they have the strongest chance either after being the only team, or after having their only loss of the year, only one loss on the year, but they did lose to Cincinnati, who is still in the conversation as undefeated. I don't see anybody saying that a team who was independent and lost to Cincinnati should get in over an undefeated Cincinnati team. So if you look at it that way, you have the SEC champion, you have Cincinnati, you have Georgia if they lose the SEC championship game, and then you have Michigan, and then you have Oklahoma State, in my opinion. I think those are the five teams that are really in contention, uh, and the SEC champion could the SEC champion could make that just four teams because, frankly, if Georgia doesn't lose, if that's them winning, then there is no conversation. It's Georgia 
and then whoever pretty much pretty much whoever wins those other conference games, uh, if Michigan and Oklahoma State win those games, uh, you will see Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma State in the playoff. And then I think it'll be a debate in terms of Cincinnati, but I'm pretty sure Cincinnati will be able to beat Houston this weekend. And a 13-0 conference champion can't be denied from the playoff if a 13-0 Notre Dame couldn't have been, de- or if a 12-1 Notre Dame last year couldn't have been denied, in my opinion. So I think it's pretty simple there. And I think in terms of the new rankings, I still think that uh, that the playoff committee will have Alabama ahead uh, of Michigan. I don't know why, but I just have a feeling that the committee wants it to set up so that Alabama can still lose that game. And if all and if there's a lot of craziness everywhere else, I don't think they want Notre Dame in the playoff again after what happened last year. So I think they're going to try to lock out Notre Dame as much as possible. I think they might even put them behind Ohio State. Let's move from college football to our weekly review of NFL action. And we'll start with the best games of Week 12. First one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the Indianapolis Colts, 38-31. A back-and-forth game that featured a lot of scoring for both teams. Uh, A good win by the Buccaneers and a game that I thought the Colts would win. And let's move back to Thanksgiving night. The Raiders, 36. Cowboys, 33 in overtime. Well, the Cowboys jumped off sides about a thousand times uh, at the end of the game, although I think they were just trying to jump the snap, knowing the only way they could win the game is if they blocked a field goal. Uh, But really, the real problem with them was Four defensive PIs by Anthony Brown alone. I think the team itself, I think the Cowboys themselves, I should say, had over 15 penalties in the entire game. Uh, and four defensive pass interferences has only happened once in NFL history, and that was Anthony Brown uh, that <laughs> in that Thanksgiving game. And for the guys who weren't committing defensive pass interferences, uh, Jordan Lewis against Hunter Renfro in the second half on five targets gave up Five receptions for 106 yards and a touchdown. The Cowboys' secondary was non-existent. All right, well, besides the Cowboys' disappointing secondary, we'll move to another dis- a couple other disappointments, most disappointing teams in the NFL. Your first one you've got, Patrick, is the Giants over the Eagles, 13-7. to Well, the Eagles looked like they might be heading into the playoff race and ha- had gotten, it felt like they had an identity and they were starting to play better. Uh, and as soon as they deviate from that identity for about a half a second, Jalen Hurts somehow throws three interceptions, uh, only throwing 20 passes. That's pretty hard to do. Uh, and he did not have a great game. Uh, sorry, he, he did not have a great game. He had a terrible game uh, against the Giants, who really don't even have that great of a secondary. They have a pretty middle-of-the-pack uh, defense when it comes to passing. So I, I just thought that when you have that team that you're playing against, do the Giants fired their offensive coordinator, Jason Garrett, last week? They didn't get anything from a different offense. Uh, you have to win that game, especially against a divisional opponent, knowing that you need the, the wins to move up in the wild card. And you had a good identity and you had a good flow going. They just didn't do anything. Jalen Rager had two key drops, and Devontae Smith only had two targets. Can't do that. All right, and the other uh, most disappointing team you've got from last week is the Chargers, who fell 28-13 to to the Broncos. This was a game where the Chargers could have pretty much not exactly sealed their playoff spot, but I feel like put a pretty good statement about it and really put down the Broncos, who are now tied with them uh, in terms of playoff spots, although somehow the Chargers are still ahead of them. I don't know exactly what tiebreaker is doing that, but I I can't explain it to you either. Um, But the Broncos got this win because the Chargers just didn't play well on offense at all, and their defense didn't do much to stop uh, the Broncos either. They couldn't create turnovers from an injured Teddy Bridgewater or from even Drew Locke when he came to the game for a series or two when Teddy Bridgewater was out. All right, well, let's see about the flip side. Most impressive teams. You could also see the teams that lost these games might have been disappointed. 
Patriots over the Titans, 36-13. Well, I wouldn't say I'm too disappointed in the Titans. This game was much closer than the score indicated. But the one thing that the Patriots did was make big play after big play after big play. Uh, the Titans got a long run in the third quarter when it looked like, and they were only down, I think, 16-13 to 13 or 17-13 to 13 at the time. But on that big run right at the end of it, uh, J.C. Jackson forces a fumble. Jalen Mills recovers, and before the fumble goes out of bounds, they both catch up from behind. Everybody is running after the ball. The Patriots just being the Patriots on that play. And also, J.C. Jackson got an interception on a fourth and goal uh, in the fourth quarter, so... The, the Titans could have easily scored more in that game, so they didn't actually... I'm not actually too disappointed in them, and I thought they did not have a chance of winning this game because the Patriots had just been playing too well, but this is really a sign that this team really has what it takes to be a Super Bowl-winning team. I think I was I was a little bit... I, I was thinking, it's the Patriots, but they don't quite have the quarterback play. That's not it. The defense is just too good. It does not matter that they don't have a that they don't necessarily have an elite quarterback. All they need is for Mac Jones to be good, and they will be a Super Bowl contender. And when you look at all the other teams in the AFC, they all have major issues. Uh, the Patriots just don't. All right. Well, another AFC team that impressed you: the Bengals, forty-one to ten over the Steelers. I'm not disappointed in the Steelers. I knew they were going to get crushed in this game, but I'm just really impressed that the Bengals did it by not only scoring, you know, a bunch of offensive touchdowns, but running the ball effectively, also throwing the ball very effectively and efficiently, and got a defensive touchdown out of this game. The Bengals just played well, played so well in every facet of the game. All right, how about your most impressive players of the week? Leonard Fournette with 17 carries, 100 yards, 7 receptions for 31 yards, and 4 total touchdowns in their win. And Joe Mixon with 28 carries, 165 yards, 2 touchdowns in Cincinnati's win over the Steelers. He also had a career high in first half rushing yards. All right, let's uh, move to any overall takeaways you have from across the NFL Week 12. Well, I'll start by looking at the playoff picture. You now have Baltimore in the number one overall seed. You have New England tied with Tennessee, uh, both at 8-4, and four, but New England taking the two seed as of now. Then you have Kansas City as the fourth division winner at 7-4. and four. Then you have Cincinnati and Buffalo both at 7-4 and four in the 5-6 and six slots. And then uh, the Chargers also tied with Vegas and Denver at 7-8-9, and nine, all at 6-5. and five. Then you have Indy now at 6-6. Six and six. Although still not still in striking distance, uh, Pittsburgh at five five and one, Cleveland at six and six, Miami at five and seven. I actually think Miami, out of all of those teams that are outside of the playoff picture and and outside of Indianapolis, probably has the best chance of jumping into it. I think Cincinnati and the Chargers are the most vulnerable, and if they those two were to be replaced, Miami's playing good enough defense. I don't think they might get. I don't think they're necessarily going to get into the playoff. And I think that the reason why is probably because Cincinnati just has too good of a record to uh, kind of squander that. I think that 7-4 and four is going to be good enough for them to just hold hold serve in their division games, just win every home game in their division, and that'll be good enough for the rest of the year to keep them in the playoff picture. However, I could see the Chargers moving out of the playoffs, and I think Indy would be the team to replace them. All right, what about the NFC? You still have Arizona at number 1, 9-2. Uh, then you have Green Bay at 9-3 and three in the second slot after their win over the Rams. You have Tampa Bay, uh, eight and three at third. Uh, then you have Dallas at seven and four, still uh, in the fourth spot. But although I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, it doesn't look like anybody could really come up and win that division because it is the NFC East. Uh, LA is at fifth despite three consecutive losses. Now seven and four. San Francisco is into the playoffs at sixth, uh, six and five. They're gonna make the playoffs. They're they're the ones trending in the right direction out of any of the teams of the wild card. The rest of them are just not that strong. And frankly, 
LA is only not in danger, for, in my opinion, of missing the playoffs because of how bad the rest of the NFC is. Washington has moved into the seventh slot with their win over the Seahawks at 5-6. and six. Minnesota, Atlanta, and New Orleans are also at 5-6, and six, although they're 8th, 9th, and 10th. Then you have Philadelphia and Carolina at 11th and 12th, 5-7. and seven. Then you have the Giants and Chicago at 4-7. and seven. The Seahawks now at 3-8 and eight, pretty much have no chance, in my opinion, of making it to the playoffs. Eight losses is just going to be probably too much, although maybe not in the NFC, let's be quite honest. Um, but Washington, I think, is not going to stay in the playoff picture. I think Minnesota is probably in the best position. The Saints have the best culture out of any of these teams that are kind of on the bubble there, but Minnesota's playing the best, and I think only with the loss to the, to the Niners, and they looked pretty good in the loss still, I don't think that's all too uh, all too confusing to me and, or surprising. Uh, so I think Minnesota probably takes Washington's spot by the end of the year, but other than that, I think this will probably, at least those top five, and at this point the top six are probably who you're going to see. All right, that wraps up our look back at NFL action. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, December 3rd, where we will focus on basketball with our weekly analysis of NBA and NCAA action. In the meantime, be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games, the 13th installment of our College Football Top 25 poll on Tuesday, and Patrick's in-season NCAA basketball tournament bracket, which was posted on Saturday. All that content on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.